to love baths love talk this is the talking part of love baths love talk on friday because you know the first hour was all about the music this time it's all about the conversation and so today my guest is kevin walton who is the human resources specialist and minority um minority teacher court uh, recruitment coordinator for area cooperative education services aces so we're going to talk about minority recruitment i've been talking about this all week kevin it needs to be talked about, so we appreciate that. I'm glad that you're here, cause you know I had to, I had to, I had to woo you hard to get you here. <laughs> it's been, this is like been like a date, like, yeah, yeah. like, like finally, finally six made months. it work. <laughs> it was the courting period. <laughs> I'm like, can you just come on my show? Okay, Baz. Oh, oh, can you come on my show? Yeah, I'll come on your show. Can you come on my show? Let me give you some dates. <laughs> And then you ran the piece. You put a piece in the inner city, which was a which was a good piece about um, the conference that y'all hosted at Southern Connecticut State University on minority teacher recruitment. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, so talk about tell me why is minority recruitment a big deal? Well, I, I think um, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me, and you know that's mostly true, right? We were trying <laughs> to coordinate, but I just want to thank you um, for your continued support. And you know, and I said I. You know, we did the advertising and then I had the uh, article and you like send it over and sent it over and it was published and it was fine. And then you said, come on the show. So I greatly appreciate it because we need um, vehicles like this to continue to get messages out, whether it be about MTR or whatever are things that are affecting our com- community. Mm-hmm. Um, so the symposium was uh, May 12th, I think it was. And it's just part of it's just part of our efforts to get more teachers of color into the classroom. And why do we need that? Well, I, I think, first of all, um, I think numbers-wise, the numbers will reflect that in our state here in Connecticut. Um, n- it fluctuates, but approximately 92% of our educators in public schools, certified educators, are white. Whoa! And mostly female. I didn't know it was 92%. Yeah, and the remaining 8% are divided between black, Hispanic, Asian, and then also other, whatever other is, right? <laughs> um, and so I think that's real problematic in terms of the lack of diversity in the educator workforce. Wow. I had no idea it was that high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? When you think of I guess because you know what? Because I live in New Haven. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to see black teachers, you're more likely to see them here. Is that accurate to say? Well, you're likely to see them in uh, New Haven, Hartford, Bridgeport, um, Waterbury, the urban settings. Okay. Um but this issue of a lack, but then and note if you look at those numbers too, although they're the highest in the urban centers, there's still this glaring lack of um, educators of color throughout the state. Um, but they are most teachers of color are um, concentrated in the urban districts. So, so New Haven is having this conversation too. Mm-hmm. Like they're putting in some effort out to sort of recruit minority teachers too, because they recognize that there is some problem. Mm-hmm. So, is this? Uh, 
So who else around the country is having this conversation? Everyone. Um, I, and it's a great, that's a great question because this conversation is finally happened um, nationally. Um, and New Haven has been a partner. So we've been doing this work at ACES. We've been coordinating minority teacher recruiting efforts. Um, I've been doing it for approximately 10 years. Wow. Before that, my boss, uh, Claudette Beeman, who's actually retiring today, today's her last day, and then Carolyn McNally before that. So we've been redoing this for close to 20 years at ACES leading this effort. Um, and New Haven has been a great partner along with some other districts um, that have continued to um, support our efforts. Okay. All right. So what have you learned in these uh, 10 years of doing this minority recruitment? What have you learned? Well, I, I learned that um, Well, there's so many different uh, things to learn. I think the biggest lesson is that those numbers are glaring. And what happens is, why uh, black, Latino, Hispanic, whom Asian um, students aren't going into education is because I think that the very basic level is that no one's talking to them about the importance of them being educators. Mm-hmm. And I think for people who push back on, well, why do we have to have these efforts? You're saying if you have a diverse educated workforce, impact it impacts all students, right? So the kids in the suburbs can stand to um, see black men and black women in authority. I mean, sometimes if your experience is only seeing black folks or Hispanic folks on the TV, and we know when that is, it's either playing sports, <laughs> entertaining, entertaining, or the perp walk for the first half hour on the local news. Yeah. Right? And so it's important that people see that um, black, Latino, um, Asian folks in positions of authority. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the structure of an education classroom, um, there are going to be a lot of pe- black and Latino and has- Hispanics working in the school, but where are they going to be? They're going to be paraprofessionals. They're going to be security guards. They're going to be cafeteria workers. They're going to be um, bus drivers um, and so forth. But in terms of the people in charge and authority, administrators and teachers, most likely it's going to be white. And wow. so it's important that we get this message out to our young people that, number one, education is a viable career track. Well, it and was it, it was it was our historically it was our gateway to the middle class mm-hmm. life, right? Sure, absolutely. You could you could become a teacher, buy a house, raise your family, and retire and do well, mm-hmm. and and live in the community and live in the community. So when did that all change? It changed right around Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. See, so this lack of uh, teachers, uh, lack of Diverse educated workforce is a civil rights issue. And I say that because around uh, the Board versus Brown, of Edu- Brown versus Board of Education decision, when there was a plan to integrate our students, there wasn't a plan to integrate the teachers. So if you think back at that time, the teachers were like really high-achieving academic folks graduating from HBCUs. Um, so we're talking about PhDs, EDDs, Brilliant scientists, brilliant mathematicians, those are the folks that were teaching our kids. Yes. And once integration happened in the racist South, the racist folks were like, first of all, we don't want your kids, right? But you're forcing us to take your kids. Well, we darn sure don't want your teachers. Your teachers. And so we left the profession in droves mm-hmm. because we didn't have positions for us in the South. And that's if you if you do, you know, you see then there was this migration to the North yes. with all the other professions where Black folk could come and try to make a decent living. 
um, and not have to worry about fearing for their lives, it migrated up north. And so that's when, you know, the folks, the Dr. Males of the world who um, kind of that those folks who have been longtime educators started coming this way. So if you notice, a lot of those folks came from the south and, and landed here in Connecticut and other parts of the northeast. Wow, that's pretty. That's a that's a very interesting timeline, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, unintended consequences. Yeah, right? right. So when you think about the Great Migration, and then when you think about um, um, the segregation, I don't think anybody ever thinks about the teacher part of it. That you know what, if we are forced to teach your kids, okay, but we are not forced to take your educators. Absolutely, and I think you see it today, right? So I, I work in human resources, and you know the very basic thing you talk about people getting jobs most of the times you're going to get hired because of you know someone someone may recommend you for an interview someone say hey i know this person and that's how it happens so when you're talking about who's doing the hiring if you go into an interview mm-hmm. and the hiring team doesn't look like you well the hiring team is going to hire someone who looks, looks like, like them, them <laughs> who they're comfortable with and so sometimes we say well the teachers aren't there there are times that we're able to bring uh black, Hispanic, Asian teachers to the table. And then it's also getting over that hurdle, trying to get top-down buy-in from a superintendent, trying to get buy-in from assistant superintendents, trying to get buy-in from building principals who may not feel that it's necessary to have Mm -hmm. teachers of color because they're, you know, they're fine how they are. Ooh. So when 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 you do this recruiting, I mean, the city of New Haven has said, let's look to the HBCUs. Is that is that part of your thinking too? So I, I think the city of New Haven and like a lot of districts are kind of uh, following step. There was a, a board member, a state board of education, uh, I think her name is uh, Staten, who was putting a lot of pressure on the state to say, "Listen, we need more educators of color, and we need to look at HBCUs." Um, and so I buy into that concept of going and recruiting at HBCUs. In fact, this past March, we went to Howard. Um, to their education fair. But, you know, instead of doing a typical education fair, what we did was we went a day before mm-hmm. and we met with a group of students. And because there's always, the, the fear has always been that, well, these kids that attend HBCUs from the South aren't going to come to Connecticut. It's cold. It's this, this, and that. And what it's we expensive. learned, it's expensive. But what we learned is they said, listen, if you have a job for us, we'll, we'll come. come. Right? We want to <laughs> work. that everybody's it, thing, Exactly. Right? You know, and so... And but then those kids were very smart, so they started talking about, but how are you going to get us here? Because see, if this school district is offering me a signing bonus, or if this school district is offering to pay for my masters, what are you all doing in Connecticut? And so we're a little bit behind the times on that as Whoa. well, right? And so I think we have to kind of, um, kind of go back and reevaluate what we're doing, trying to get folks here. But in terms of the HBCUs, an interesting fact is that that's where the teachers are still because mm-hmm. the the data says that over half of the black teachers in, come from in America are educated at HBCUs. Oh yeah, my my daughter's at Bennett, right? Who wants to be an early childhood education teacher? And, and so that's where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also what we have in in Connecticut. We're unique is we have a lot of students who leave the state who go to HBCUs, and if we could find a way to track them, get uh-huh. them interested now, track them, and help them come back. I'll tell you a quick story. We were at Howard. There was a young man who um, was having trouble finishing his last semester. He was in a school of education. And he went back and talked to his superintendent in his hometown in, in 
in Pennsylvania, and the superintendent said, listen, we'll scholarship you. We'll give you the money if you promise to come back here and work for at least three years. Wow. And so those are some of the innovative things that, that um, school districts need to have the autonomy to be able to do, but also the state of Connecticut, we have to kind of look at the things we're doing that are going to attract more candidates, number one, from our state to go into the profession, but also to attract people from other states. Well, you know, this is an interesting thing because Connecticut seems to be losing its young people, right? Like there seems to be this thought about, you know, young people are going to college and they're not coming back. So you throw some race on top of that and, and race from of kids who don't live here and we want them to come here to live. That's an economic issue. Mm. So you have to deal with an economic issue on top of the or marry the economic issue to the recruitment issue because it's expensive here and young people want to be in maybe more exciting states. Yeah, so I, I think the expense is right. <laughs> the expense is the expense. But I also think for these young folks, right, these millennials, they're saying, listen, <laughs> we'll deal with the expense, but give us an opportunity to socialize Here's an opportunity to hang out. Here's a time that, you know, is where's, you know, where's the social, what's the social situation like? Can I go hang out? Can I go to a, is there a place where I can go with my um, laptop and my Wi-Fi and do some work and socialize and have a coffee or have a drink or do whatever the case may be? So I think the innovation has to happen there as well. Mm-hmm. You know, New Haven is, I think it's, it's going that way. But you know, when I go to Howard or I go to visit my son in D.C., you know, U Street is unrecognizable to some folks. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, because that's and that's where they all are. Yeah. And so when you talk about saying, yeah. listen, kids, I want to be in D.C. Yeah. You know, I want to be in, in cities like that. I want to be in Chicago, you know, the Chicago that we don't hear about. Right. 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 Little old little right. Uzi Vert doesn't tell us about that part of Chicago <laughs> that kids are flocking to. Right. You know, in those right. major cities. So I think New Haven is unique. In fact, I think in, in well, Connecticut, we have 34 uh, colleges, I think it is. But here in New Haven, we have a unique opportunity because we have politicians that kind of understand, starting with you know Mayor DiStefano and continuing with Mayor Hart, that understand that the, the uh, downtown is kind of the attraction to mm-hmm. bring people in. And I know we have some issues where people stand on that side of you know gentrification and things of that nature, but I think we have to do a better job of showing people in New Haven what's happening downtown, and that may build on that economic issue that you talk about. I mean, I think you're right. I think, you know, and see, that's what makes this uh, a challenging effort because you'll have folks who'll say, um, you know, why is the energy spent on, new, you know, downtown New Haven? But millennials, and, and not even just millennials, myself included, you know, we want a place to go where we can interact and connect. And, and sometimes you want to be outside of your quote-unquote respective neighborhood. Right. Like you want to I don't necessarily want a bar atmosphere in my community, in my neighborhood, but I want to go someplace where the activity is, you know, where I can see my peers and friends and all that kind of stuff. And I imagine young people, millennials more than anybody, you know, they want a place to plug in, unplug, whatever. So that's a daunting issue. So you have to sort of be a, a ambassador for <laughs> for the urban environment offering you know if you come here this is what you well well you know we don't tell them everything we don't tell them about the expense we tell them it's not that cold you know (laughs) let them figure out when they get here our job is no serious is to sell the state and say listen it's a you know it's a great state and but going back to your earlier point of um you know i think 
when you're graduating from college or if you're looking for a new career opportunity, you're going to go where the opportunity is, uh-huh. right? So a lot of my friends, whether they went to Southern uh, UNH or Western Connecticut, wherever, a lot of them ended up staying here in, yeah. New, in New Haven and yeah. Connecticut because of yeah. the opportunities yeah. um, that we weren't necessarily going to get in the, in the home, in the, in where we came from. You know, you, New Haven's unique in the fact that we can run into our mayor or our alderman or our superintendent and have those conversations and um, or just run into community folks in different places. Um, and I, I think that's attractive to people. You know, so I think the key is being able to get them here. So I guess with the conversation we have with the state is what's what's the plan to, to get them here? You know, I don't know if you're aware of the certification issues, but, you know, it's so hard to get certified in the state of Connecticut. I, I heard that. I, I, I hear mm-hmm. that, that that is a barrier. Mm-hmm. And even with all... Do they still do alternative routes to certification? Because I do. remember we do. when I worked at um, the Department of Higher Education, the alternative routes to certification was in that office. And um, and they were trying to recruit people to sort of become certified teachers and go through this process. And I was wondering if they still do that. They do. There are a number of um, alternate routes certification programs, but the one we work closely with is the one that's offered by the Office of Higher Education. And I'll give you some a little more data is saying that um, most, besides the kids that are educated at HBCUs, most black educators come through, well, not most, 30, I think it's around 34% come through the alternate route certification. So who are those folks? Those are folks that have gone to college and be, they were health majors or they were psychology majors who decide, I really like children, I really want to be an educator, so I'm going to go back. Or people that were in business. Mm-hmm. It was originally for um, folks who wanted a career change. So if you were a top-notch yeah, chemist, you can come in here. That's how I remember here. it to be. Um, and then I think it's kind of shifted a little bit to kind of get the middle-aged folk, mm-hmm. uh, person who's decided at this point we educate. But here's the biggest, you know, we talk about going to HBCUs, and I support that. But where I I would, you know, get where we get the biggest bang for our buck is right here with our paraeducators, right? Our paraeducators, the folks who have college degrees, who love children, who work in this community, who live in this community, who aren't going to leave this community, who are going to spend money in this community, who are going to help better this community. Those are the folks that are in our classrooms right now. Those, and not just the classroom, but those are the front office people. Mm -hmm. Those are the security guards that I mentioned, people that um, with a little support would make Excellent educators. Those are the the ones that have no problem. They ha- they can talk to parents. They can say to a kid, "Listen, stop acting up because you know I'm gonna see <laughs> you know your mother and your father a little later." Or they could pull them up and say that they're the ones who manage the classroom. Those are the ones that are helping with lessons. And so we've we've been working on that, um, and we're trying to get superintendents to see. You know, while we continue work different avenues, works to HBCUs, work at our state education is trying to get people enrolled. But right now you have a group of people who with some support would be able to make excellent educators. When I say support, the alternate certification program um, costs about uh, $6,000. Okay. So at our level, the the rest, the regional education service center level, we have scholarships that we offer folks going into alternate certification programs. So, um, about twenty five hundred dollars, um, 
and we've finished for this year. Um, and so if we get funded again next year, we'll continue to offer that. Um, and I believe there were two paraprofessionals from that work in New Haven who, depending on their acceptance to the ARC program, we will give them those $2,500 scholarships to help them get through the alternate route to service. Because like you said, it's really a path to the middle class. Mm-hmm. You talk pa- about paraprofessionals who do yeoman's work, and, and any educator will tell you that if they have a para in their class, they can't get through the day without that paraprofessional, yeah. Yeah. right? But this is a way for them to get to the middle class, mm-hmm. right? Be able to up the, double their salary, right? Maybe in a couple of years, triple their salary as going from a paraeducator to a teacher and you know and then up the career ladder maybe an assistant principal maybe a principal and, and with so that forth. comes um that comes with a lot of economic stability when you're able to do that people can buy homes they can buy property absolutely you know they can they can put their kids through school absolutely. or nieces and nephews, or whatever it is um, and and they can not work two jobs right right, right. And so they can be home with their kids and have dinner with their kids and mm-hmm. do homework with their kids versus um, whatever having to do to make ends meet because I know where I'm at at ACES, a lot of our paraprofessionals have to work two jobs in order to make ends meet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they will, that's a, that's a, that's a group that we have to continue to push and support. Mm. So where do you see the state of uh, education going, Kevin? Do you, are you hopeful about education? Like, what are you seeing? I, because it just seems, there seems to be a lot of conversation about what n- what is not getting across to students. You know, we've seen so many different models, teaching to the test, mm-hmm. you know, t- teaching, taking away um, um, outside time. I mean, we've, we've just seen so many things with education. Um, so what do you, what's your thoughts on this? I mean, you're working for ACEs and they're all about education, mm-hmm. you know. You know, that's a great question. And I don't know if I've ever really thought about it that um, because I'm really focused on trying to get young people interested mm-hmm. in the profession. And I think back to myself, I've, you know, I've worked with kids since I was 15 years old and I say I was a kid myself, but I was at a camp. I was a camper upstate New York somewhere. And um, the counselor got in trouble um, for something. And the director came and asked me to be a counselor. So I, in fact, I had, one or two campers that were younger than me. And so that was my first foray into working with young people. And I work with young people, been interested, young people in my passion since then. And when I got to Southern Connecticut, um, I was going to be a psychology major until I got my first test back. And I was like, I didn't take this test in red ink. <laughs> let me try something different. And so then, you know, I was like, well, I became a communications major. Uh-huh. But all that time, no one ever said, well, if you're interested in kids, why don't you think about becoming an educator? Wow. So at the very basic level, that's where we are with young people. And that's that symposium that we did when we had about approximately 150 black, Hispanic, and Asian young men from six different school districts who came and and went through a, a day of activities that were based just to introduce them to the education profession. Um, and we heard from current educators, male educators, although I will say Keisha Red and our Five-year history, Keisha Red was our first female uh, panelist <laughs> who, um, who was able to share some really good knowledge. And basically, we wanted them to tell young people. You mean Keisha Red, my sorrow? Yeah, your sorrow. Oh, okay. Yeah, of course. I have to say that. Of course. <laughs> um, the dynamic principal at Celentano, right? Um, but what happened was 
they were able to tell them the pros and cons of edge of being an educator. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. were told um, the career ladder. But the, I think the thing that struck home for these young people was that not everyone woke up one day in the second grade and was lining up the doll saying, I'm going to be an educator. Folks had different stories about how they got to the profession. Um, William Rice, who is the, uh, the, the curriculum director at ACES, as of you know today's his last day, starting uh, Monday, well, July 1, he will be the assistant executive director at ACES. Wow. Um, you know, brilliant, brilliant um, brother. Um, he talked about the fact that he was a chemical engineer, um, but his passion was kids. He was leaving the office, going to coach football. And, this, and the people told him, listen, if you want to advance in this place, in this career, you got to stay around. He was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and so William, you know, he 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 put his, you know, he he did what he had to do and went back to school and became an educator mm-hmm. and, and shot up the ladder. And now he's, you know, essentially an assistant superintendent now. And we're very proud of that at, at ACE. I think he's going to do a wonderful job. Um, but there is just so many other people who come into the education profession different ways. So mm-hmm. it's not just about it's been in me from day one. I was lining up my dolls and I was teaching lessons, this and that. Because <laughs> you hear those stories. Yeah. People say I was born to be an educator. Um, and I think that's what struck home with these young people is kind of say, listen, you know, I can do. And if you don't want to be a teacher, you can be a guidance counselor. You can be a social worker. You could be a. OT, a PT. Um, there are so many uh, um, certified positions that we need um, our young people to consider that, um, you know, and we're willing to talk to them about those things. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what makes, when you when you recruit teachers, what makes a good teacher? Like, what do you look for? What do you think about when you go in to talk to people about, you know what, I, I, we're, we're here to recruit teachers. What do you look for? What's the thing? Well, um, well, it's twofold. We're like we're just kind of to young people. We're saying everybody be an educator, really, <laughs> right? Consider it, and okay. then as you go up the ladder. But as I sit around in interviews and we're doing a hiring, um, as an HR practitioner, what I'm looking for is fit. Mm-hmm. Do they are they going to fit in? Um, I'm looking for what's their philosophy on classroom management, right? Um, because you can have all the content area in the world. But if you can't manage that classroom, <laughs> you're never going to get to content, yeah. right? But yeah. if you can manage a classroom, and educators have told me, we can, you, know, you can learn content, and you can learn delivery. But if you can't manage that classroom, you're not going to be And effective. classroom management means what? <laughs> it, it, means, um, it means being able to, to handle that class, handle like- classroom, um, differentiate instruction. But it also means how do we say, okay, if this, you know, we got some talkative ones, we got some ones that like to get up. It's how you manage that class. Mm-hmm. How do you lessen the disruption of the educational process for other kids? Wow. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and far too many, it's go to the office. <laughs> <laughs> far too many have that. Uh, that's their, you know, their strategy. Yeah, but, and, you, but can you learn, like, can you look at someone and say, uh, you know, even, even like in the first 90 days and they're not managing their classroom. Is there some supports to put in place to sort of help them look at how to do this a little differently or better or more effectively? Oh, absolutely. And that's a great question because I think that's where, um, you know, we as a human, re- again, as a human resources practitioner, I get to work with the administrators to say, okay, how are we going to help this teacher? Mm-hmm. So educators have their own thing. They have to observe four times a year and they have to coach. And they, so that's really their job. 
So from where I sit and working with administrators and sometimes working with the educators is we kind of say, okay, where's the deficiency um, and what do we need to work on? And then there are times where you put a plan together and you follow this plan and, you know, and it works. Okay. Some people can't be counseled through. Okay. Some people, it doesn't work. They have to be counseled out, <laughs> right? Because it's not, it's not, and that's the main thing. Teaching is hard and yes. it's not for everyone. Yes. Right. It's yes. not hard. It's not for everyone. So again, at the basic level, we just want to let people know that this is a viable education field and people who want to coach. I can tell you another quick story, you know, over at Wilbur Cross, I always saw this young man, very nice young man, played football and he was a shot putter. Um, so right around graduation, I asked, him, I said, what are you going to do? He said, oh, I'm going to go to Southern. And I said, um, what are you going to major in? He said, exercise science. I said, so what are you going to do with that? He said, oh, I don't know, maybe work in a gym. I said, would you ever consider being a teacher? And he said, teacher? I said, yeah, you know, you played sports. You ever think about coaching? You ever think about being a phys ed teacher? And he said, like, wow, no. No one ever talked to me about that. So at the very least, we have to put this, plant this seed in students' head. And the other question you asked, so we look for leaders too. Mm-hmm. People who are going to be able to not only take direction, but able to offer some other things, how they see how this may make things work better, make this classroom work better, make the school work better, um, things of that nature. We don't want people just to be passive and say, okay, this is what I'm told to teach the curriculum, to think outside the box and things of that nature. Wow. Mm-hmm. If you just tuned in, I'm Babs Ross Ivy. This is Love Babs Love Talk. And I'm sitting here with Kevin Walton, um, the human resources specialist. And uh, the minority teacher coordinator at, uh, at ACES Area um, Cooperative Education Services. And uh, you're listening to us on 103.5 um, WNHH. And we're live streaming on the New Haven Independent. And we are Facebook Live and YouTube Live. So we're having a really, I think this is a really rich conversation around minority education, um, minority teacher recruitment uh, um, for education. So, um, so you're a coach. Yeah. <laughs> You've been doing this a while. You started out coaching girls. Yes. Uh-huh. You know, you're at career. Mm-hmm. You, you took those girls to championship status mm-hmm. on more than one occasion, I believe. Yeah. And now you're over at Cross dealing with the boys. Yes. Is there a difference? Um, there's a difference. Uh, well, yeah, there's a difference. I, I think, um, you know, uh, boys, I, I think, you know, we're just, gr- I mean, girls are great to be here. I love being around the girls. Boys, I think it's also opportunity to teach um, some of those life life lessons that they're going to need to be able to prosper in this world. I don't mm-hmm. want to say survive because we're not trying to teach kids how to survive. I mean, teach them how to prosper in this world. So, I mean, kids. What I've learned is kids are kids, right? Um, you know, so there isn't a real difference other than um, you know tryouts, right? Boys, you know, every December we're going to have about a hundred boys in the gym. Um, trying to try out for a few spots, but I think there's there's no different. What I'm learning is that you know we have some really really brilliant kids in New Haven, mm-hmm. um, some really good kids, and then we have some kids who, with some guidance, who could do some really really great things. So you know, I I I take my position as a, a coach very seriously, because um, my job is to mold them, mm-hmm. to motivate them, um, and prepare them for the next phase of their life, whether it's college, whether it's uh, the military, or whether it's the workforce. Um, and being able to have that type of impact. You know, we understand that we're modeling for our kids all the time. Um, you know, and so it's been mindful because when I was coaching girls um, as a man, I didn't want to present this picture of someone who's, you know, a cursor and this and that and this and that. But with the boys, I'm even more <laughs> mindful 
of the fact that you try to teach them how to resolve conflict uh-huh. as young black and Latino, because that's who we predominantly have young and Hispanic men, teach them how to resolve conflict, teach them, um, impart upon them what it's going to take to kind of find their way through the system. And this is even before they even get to bounce the ball. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's <laughs> the, you know, that's the, the goal. And I think when I decided to leave career to take on this challenge at Wilbur Cross, I think that all things being equal, it was the opportunity to work with young um, men mm-hmm. in this situation. You know, my love for basketball, my love for um, young people and my, especially my young for my love for my young black brothers, my young has, Hispanic brothers is that, I wanted to have the opportunity mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. do that. And, and basketball is one way that I get to do it. You know, a co-advisor of the NAACP is another opportunity to do it. Um, you know, obviously working through my fraternity, Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated mm-hmm. is another way to do it. And so all these opportunities just to, um, to impact this community, mm-hmm. um, you know, in particularly my village of Fairhaven, you know, so we do some things out that are germane just to Fairhaven because, you know, our young people want to do some things. But, Baz, let me tell you, I'm glad you brought that up because it's not all basketball, right? So because there are so many other opportunities for kids. Um, Leap just announced that they have a competitive swim team. I know. I was trying to get Margot to try out. So I would love to see. Because she's a swimmer. Yeah, we and we need those folks. Mm-hmm. And here's what happens with swimming, right? So Margot's a swimmer. You know, talking about economics, there are so many lifeguard positions. Yes. And so if we need more kids out there who can swim to go and get certified as lifeguards, you're going to be able to have a job whenever and wherever. Yes. Right. Yes. You know, golf. Yes. Right. Um, yes. I never had access to a golf course when I was young. I lived 10 minutes from a golf course, but it was just unattainable. It was too expensive. Too expensive. Black people didn't play golf, yeah. this and that, you know, but now I would love to get kids on a golf course. Lacrosse. My kids play golf. They all play. of those other things yeah. that um, we'll be able to, help them be prosperous citizens mm-hmm. as they get it to become adults. That's a, see, that's a, see, these are the kinds of things that don't get the, the, the props out there. You know, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about at risk kids. and I think every kid is at risk. I don't care where you come from. <laughs> every kid is at risk, but we don't spend enough time talking about um, all the stuff that we are already doing to sort of support the development and the prosperity of kids, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think we do enough of that. I think we are, I think we are very hard on saying we have a, a juvenile issue as if it's a problem mm-hmm. that can be just, you know, contained by virtue of a few words and then that's it. Right. But that there's so much going on. And then I think once you say that, that young people, I think young people gravitate toward um, the positive stuff more mm-hmm. than they do the negative stuff. Absolutely. You know, I believe that. So. Well, I think kids, kids gravitate towards the connection. It's about the connection. So listen, if a kid connects to you, you could take him kayaking. He's going to be like, I want to be a professional kayaker, <laughs> right? Because, you know, because Babs took me kayaking and Babs is great. It's hard to be a professional kayaker. Now, I don't even know if there's professional kayak, but, you know. There are. Right. You know, like, um, you know, Sean, Sean Reeves Sr., who tragically lost his son years ago, he's taking that energy and now his how he's impacting young people. He's teaching them how to play chess, mm-hmm. right? He had a love for chess. Yeah, that's his way to get to reach people. Yeah, is is chess. You know, um, so there are these pockets. And I heard I was reviewing something yesterday, and I heard a woman say that the only thing these kids are at risk for is being like phenomenal. 
as long as they get the support. Yeah. Right? If yeah. we if we catch them early and we give them support and we give them the love, we give them the opportunity to try things, we give them the opportunity to fail things, we give them the opportunity to say, to figure out what they like. Yeah. And things of that nature. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. The squeaky wheel gets the oil and we're always in this kind of state of crisis with these kids. And then there are these kids who don't get the attention, like that brilliant young lady, Coral, who was the... Uh, the valedictorian at Hill House. Yeah. Did you get the opportunity to hear her speech? Yes. Like powerful beyond measure. I know. Like, where were you, baby? Like, <laughs> right, right. Well, she was always there. We but were we, just looking at all the other exactly. kids who needed, we thought needed you our know, attention. There was a kid today, uh, nine, I think he's nine years old in uh, Texas, who who designed a fan because a kid in his, a baby in his neighborhood died in a locked car. Yes. And a nine-year-old kid designed yes. a fan yes. that would kick in when the temperature got too... Uh, you know, and, we ran that story in the inner city. Oh, well, see, well <laughs> then props, props to the inner city because... <laughs> we ran that story. I, ha I just heard about it today. So mm -hmm. props to the inner city because mainstream media didn't pick up on that. No. Now, let's just say... he didn't shoot anybody. Yeah, right. Or he didn't get shot by a... Uh, this unarmed nine-year-old didn't get shot by a white police officer, so we're not going to hear about that. Right. You know what right, I'm saying? And I right. said, again, that's part of the message, but I don't want to go off on that tangent. But <laughs> we need to celebrate the excellence and the brilliance of these kids. Yeah. And that's, mm -hmm. I think that's a missing piece. That is a missing piece. So, Kevin, when you are recruiting and you're, um, you know, you're talking, are you talking to guidance counselors? Like, how do you get into the schools to sort of say to kids at the high school level when they're starting to graduate and go into their collegiate um, um, experiences, do you get to do you get app opportunity to do that and say, you know, I know you're, you're picking the school of your choice and whatever, but think about education while you're out there thinking about what you're going to do and major. Like I hear you saying you want to be this and that and the other thing, but in the back of your mind, keep this little seed just in case you, you know, it, it, you know, you might want to consider this. Sure. So another great question. But my in my role, I haven't had the opportunity um, to speak to kids directly in that manner because I work more with the adults. OK. However, um, Debbie Breland over in New Haven, who's now the MTR coordinator in New Haven, has developed um, with the blessing of Dr. Mayo and, and Lisa Mack has developed a future teachers program. Mm -hmm. And we have made it a point that we will get in to talk to them. I think, and that's the great point, is that we have to bring in the guidance counselors. So we're working our way down because, you know, it's taking us time to convince superintendents and building principals. So now we're working our way down because the guidance counselors are that direct link to the kids. I think so. And the students. Although when I was a kid, the guidance counselor, because I went to Eli Whitney, which is a vocational technical mm -hmm. school. And, uh, and I remember saying, um, I went to my guidance counselor. I said, you know, I want to go to med school. I, I want to be a doctor because I want to. They were like, no, you know, you went, this is a Voltec. You're not geared toward mm. medical stuff. And I was like, as I went home and told my mother, my mother was like, you can do whatever you want to do. Like, mm -hmm. And I was a med major when I went to college. Now, I veered from that. Mm -hmm. but, I, but the fact that I was counseled against what I wanted mm -hmm. was quite telling. And I've heard stories over and over where guidance counselors have counseled people out of yeah, I, you know, if you've heard those, I personally haven't witnessed that, but you hear the stories. Um, you also hear, and I don't want to offend any of my um, any any educators, right? Um, but kids, right, have said that some teachers are the biggest deterrent from going into the profession, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Some kids have reported that 
there are some teachers that they think hate their job. <laughs> right? And, 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 and they and, talk and about that's the treatment. true somewhere because well, people hate their jobs. Sure. And and for, from a student's perspective, because we delve into this um, conversation with them, they talk about the way they the way they treat kids. But the flip side, they say, well, sometimes kids say, I don't want to teach because I don't want to teach us. Right? So kids are, are certainly aware of the dynamic that happens in a school, um, how teachers are how teachers are treated, things of that nature. So mm-hmm. I think there is this kind of this this these clashes of personalities that we have. That's one of the barriers that we have to get over. Um, but teachers, while they could be the biggest deterrent, teachers are also the biggest influences of people who want to go into education. And still to this day, whenever a successful person, and you know, you le- you kind of determine what your level of success is, but most people can point to it was a teacher yes. that inspired them. Like Oprah that. says that all the time. <laughs> you know, she has a teacher that whatever. Denzel has a teacher who ex- inspired them. I mean, you have a teacher. I had sure a teacher. I had one. Paul Light. And you Paul know? Light was, a, a, was a, a, a middle-aged white guy who was my teacher who was um, a mentor of mine who mm-hmm. kind of helped guide me and shape me during my high school years mm-hmm. and beginning mm-hmm. of my college years. So, And he was a teacher right at my school. So teachers are still those influences in people's lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, because you know what? If you think about this, you know, other than your parents, school is where your big part of your day is. Absolutely. <laughs> and then if you play sports, the coach, you know, so pa- pa- parents probably spend less time than teachers and coaches do with kids on a daily basis. Absolutely. Kids, especially to high school kids, they spend, especially where we're, where we are at, at Cross, right? And I imagine it's the same thing as at all the other schools. There are some kids who come to school at whatever time, 730 and don't leave until seven thirty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that's it for them. Yeah. Whether it's too far for them to go home and come back, or whether it's like, this is what I like to be. I like to hang out with my and it's friends. It's a safe place. It's and, safe. Yeah. And things I need. So I. So that's what I think schools need to do. We need to be a little more creative there and saying, okay, if kids are going to be here, then let's create something for them besides the varsity sports program. And that's the other thing I talked to when I spoke to some kids at Ross Woodward last week is like, you know, everybody can't play sports, but we still need student council people who are going to dictate the agenda for the school. We still need people in drama and visual and, and visual arts. We still need people in the, um, the yearbook club. Listen, career has a state championships robotic team, (laughs) right? And and so, And Dr. Paris shared with us that these kids are like local celebrities now, like because you know, like they have their own following because they're these brilliant yeah. um, scientists and STEM kids who are able able to not only build beautiful machines but also compete. Mm-hmm. And now here they are as champions. And so there are so many things for our kids to be involved with, and school is still the epicenter of that. Mm-hmm. So, lastly, before before we uh, before we get up out of here, um, how? supportive are teachers in your effort like do you draw from them do they offer you their advice do they have an opinion about how recruitment should go what you should look for um things that some pearls of wisdom that they impart to you to sort of help you do what you do well you know and and to my and and so we have to do a better job of engaging them and i think that's our next level next phase you know um Edith Johnson, the great principal at Wilbur Cross, you know, she and I often have these conversations about how we get folks in. And so I think it's an opportunity now to bring 
them in, mm-hmm. right? Um, for them to say that. And I think that's something that Keisha and I were trying to work on. I think we just ran out of time. The school year, so I hope we'll continue in the fall, is saying, what are the strategies? And coming directly from um, the, the, the decision makers in the school themselves, because anecdotally, we speak outside and we say, oh, this would be great if we did this. We gave kids an opportunity to come in and tutor. And we gave kids um, opportunity to do this in the summer. Well, we're talking about it without the people who can say, yeah, they can, I can dedicate a class yeah. to come into. <laughs> and yeah, and I know the kids yeah. and we can arrange transportation. So we have to take advantage of them and bring it, do a better job of bringing the teachers and the administrators in to help develop this strategy. And I know quickly what I want to say is one of the things we're working on is the HBCU, um, I'm sorry, a um, Panhellenic strategy. Because as you know, oh. there are so many of our educators who are members of the divine nine yes and especially yes. here in new haven so many of our brilliant educators teachers past and um, present pa- past and present yes including our um current superintendent mm-hmm. um who are members of greek letter organizations a member of the divine nine so we have to you know this opportunity for us to be able to impact this as well okay well you know the inner city newspaper is uh, always a vehicle which you can use to Say whatever you want to say about minority recruitment. You know, I'm a fan of ACES. Um, and more more importantly, I'm a fan of yours. So you are welcome to use that paper for your recruiting efforts. Mm. Uh, you know, if you want to talk to the community in the ways that only we can talk to our community. Absolutely. The paper is your vehicle. So I offer it to you at any time that you want. Well, I appreciate it. And I am a fan of yours. I mean, even before, <laughs> you know, this goes way back. But what you do um, in the community, what you're doing with your vehicle is amazing. So I thank you for giving me the opportunity to come here and speak to your fans and speak to your listeners. Um, the last thing I will say is that, you know, parents, if parents can talk to their children about their career choices and say, you know what, consider education, mm-hmm. you know, and all the wonderful things about education, because right now, um, all of our 10 month staff are done for the summer, right? Yeah. They're done for eight <laughs> weeks. So they get to hang out, walk around in shorts and flip flops, recharge their batteries. Yeah. And me, listen, I got to hustle back to work. You know, <laughs> I just spent my lunch hour here with you. Right. So <laughs> those are the benefits of being a teacher all the days off. You know, they get good pay, you know, and if you don't think so, go into the parking lot and see all those nice cars that those <laughs> teachers and administrators are driving. So. <laughs> That's the, you know, when we appeal that to me at the very basic level, like, you can make a lot of money. You can make a lot of money. You can, li- you can live a good life. Right, exactly. You can live a, little, a good life and have a sum- summer's off, whatever. And, exactly. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing. And you get to, and you get to uh, be a part of developing the next generation of fine minds. And that's the biggest thing that will never change about teaching is that you get to develop and inspire and motivate and yeah. engage. And you will be the person when the next, you know, the next, uh, uh, Bill Picard, William Picard is going to say, well, you know, I was inspired by my fourth grade teacher who told me that I was brilliant. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kevin. Oh, thank you. You got to come back. This was a a rich conversation. Harry, thanks for producing. Yes. Thank you. All right. So listen, I'm out of here. I'm not back until uh, uh, next week. And then after that, I'm on vacation. I'm going to Jamaica. So it would be a week of the best of Love Babs, Love Talk. And Harry will hold it down. And uh, y'all have a good, good weekend. And enjoy yourselves. I'll see you later.